This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Lee Hutchison. Hi Lee, how are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to be on again. I think this is an episode that only could be done in the, the toy box of Primitive Culture, so always feel, <laughs> feel excited to be on this podcast. Well, that's nice to feel that we have these uh, sort of exclusive topics. I don't know whether that's true. I feel like Metatrex could probably find a way into this one. But um, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's good as ever to have you back. You're, you know, a man who keeps returning, not unlike um, the the person that we're talking about today, uh, Jack Bauer, someone who every time he's given up for dead, uh, taken away to a foreign power to be imprisoned, uh, somehow he manages to sort of worm his way back into uh, our lives and <laughs> into a new storyline and another kind of horrific day. Um, I, I'm looking forward to talking about this. 24 is something that I've only really come to. I, I watched a little bit of one or two of the seasons back in the day, but only really came to uh, quite recently when it came up on Disney Plus, when Disney Plus in the UK suddenly uh, dropped like all the Fox stuff and loads of other kind of grown up entertainment. But I know this is a show that you've been uh, following, you know, for quite a long time now, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I, and fitting fat manner, the first time I ever watched it was on VHS. Um, I I came into it. I I watched a little bit of season two, um, and then I bought season one on VHS at the time. It was all the way back in the days of BBC having um twenty four. So they had like twenty four on a Sunday night, and then they had like an after show. I think it had Claudia Winkleman actually hosted it. Um, so I kind of started to watch a little bit of season two, but I never managed to finish it. Um, and then I got season one on on VHS and then I remember doing really well in my school exams which really dates this even further and I got season one and two on DVD box set and I blitzed that over over a couple of days and then from then on I think season three went to Sky um, on our version of Cable over here and I followed it all the way through to, to the end um, over many many years and it made me chuckle when you were talking about Jack Bauer's Always a Man Coming Back and um, a singer I really love, Emmy the Great, wrote a song all about watching a 24 box set in her like album that came out about maybe like 15 or so years ago. And um, I went to a 
just before COVID kicked in, she did a tour where she performed that whole album live and she went, what's Jack Bauer up to these days? And I, being in the audience, I was actually like, actually, he's in a Russian prison. And she's like, oh, that's such a shame. So yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he's still part of kind of my world, even in the, in the most obscure ways, whether it's appearing on a podcast or going along to uh, an indie singer concert. Well, there you go. And who knows, it may not be the last that we've heard of him because they did uh, they did kind of reboot 24 without Jack uh, a few years ago, but it didn't really take off. And I think there has been talk in more recent years of, you know, bringing back, just as we brought back so many legacy characters, you know, here's another one that we can defrost. And, and as you say, yeah, they left him in that Russian... I mean, this is a massive spoiler. We just spoiled the end of whatever it is, nine seasons plus <laughs> plus a TV movie, uh, plus some webisodes and so on. Uh, but yeah, you're right. That The last that we saw of him, he was being carted off by the Russians. But then we've, we've seen that before because a few seasons earlier, he was carted off by the Chinese and he managed to make his way back from that. But I'm interested that you... that it was season two where you came on board and you said you were doing school exams. I remember I was at university then in my first year I think um, and that's the season that I remember 24 from and it's interesting so it makes me wonder did the BBC do a big push for season two that they hadn't done for season one is there a reason you, you know was that the jumping on point for a lot of people because I think in some ways that's the most uh, not the most iconic season but it's kind of it, it's the one where everything sort of falls into place and partly I wonder, because we think of 24 as obviously a post 9-11 show, uh, and that's the context in which really I wanted to look at it uh, in relation to Enterprise and the extent to which season three of Enterprise is kind of uh, doing, you know, Star Trek 24 to some extent um, and riffing off that. But like Enterprise, uh, the first season of 24, I think, came out, it, it must have come out it, they must have been working on it before 9-11, right, in order for it to have um, debuted when it did. So in some ways, maybe season two is the point where they're consciously writing a kind of post-9-11 show. And somehow it feels like everything kind of ramps up a little bit and the the stakes get a lot higher and the kind of it, it becomes the show that that it's going to be, if you know what I mean. Definitely. I mean, Enterprise Season 1 launched on... Let me just get this up here. I've got it, Tan, because I knew something like this would come up. It came out September 26, 2001, so just a couple of weeks later. And then 24 was out on November 6th, of uh, 2001 as well and obviously the first episode has a plane exploding as well which you know was was quite a shocking image of, of the time you know as you say these are both sort of shows that are kind of dropped after 9-11 I mean there's very little of that 9-11 feel apart from maybe things like sort of internment camps for example in in a couple of those early episodes of, of season ones and two but nothing where you would say it's the politics of the time are influencing Enterprise until like the season two finale, The Expanse, which is very much a 9-11 episode, almost two years to the day afterwards. Whereas 24, that first season, you know, is kind of very much within a bubble. It's about, you know, a family out to get kind of revenge, a family on the brink of collapse within the Bauer family, you know, domestic sort of terrorism, you know simpler times in a way um, mm-hmm. and then it's that season two where it, things get a bit more as you say big with like the threat of a nuclear weapon you know an attack on American soil on, on that type of scale whereas the the first one is very much a, an assassination plot which wasn't out of the, the world at the time whereas a nuclear bomb going off on US soil and you know a terrorist attack on that scale by you know it, it was you know the characters as often was in the case in 24 were perpetrated by, by Muslim characters and people from 
the the Middle East that were being protected by you know nations that are essentially ciphers for Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean it's it's true, absolutely. I mean maybe twenty four as a show. It sounds like a, a terrible thing to say in a way, but it, it in some ways benefited from uh, happening to debut at the time that it did because it, it sort of tapped into something that suddenly became, you know, more than just a zeitgeist. I mean, became the kind of predominant focus of the entire Western world to some extent and the, and the anxiety of, you know, not just America, but uh, in Britain as well and elsewhere. Um, and so it was sort of able to jump on that. I mean, I don't know, sometimes... I feel like it's easy to be kind of harsh on enterprise and say, oh, it took them two years to, you know, say something about 9-11. Um, and I think it's true. There are, there are moments, there are sort of glimpses in those first two seasons. There, there is that episode detained, which you mentioned. Uh, there's the iconography in that, um, season one finale, Shockwave, where they have these kind of mangled girders, uh, in the aftermath of a sort of disaster that, that feel very much like a sort of visual, uh, echo of of 9-11 and in fact they do show the twin towers i think in the temporal observatory so there are little kind of uh hint there are little hints if you know what i mean but it's not a 9-11 show whereas 24 very much you know yes it's true like that first season is about an assassination attempt and from then on it's it's really about the terrorists and you, you know sometimes they're politically backed terrorists sometimes they're kind of more individual cells sometimes sometimes there's you know, state-sponsored uh, stuff going on with the Russians or the Chinese or whoever it might be. But it is really a case of, you know, America is under siege from various uh, nasty groups of, yeah, as you say, uh, often Middle Eastern, sometimes African, sometimes, you know, quite often Russian as well. Uh, but these kind of uh, foreigners coming in and trying to kill people uh, and Jack Bauer being the man who stands in between us and them. And I suppose one of the things I'm kind of interested about in 24 um, is, and in Enterprise, is how does Enterprise manage to take Captain Jonathan Archer, who seems like such a kind of folksy, like he's the he's the most naive, he's the sort of nicest guy of all the Star Trek captains somehow. And in season three, I think they do a pretty good fist, actually, of taking him down a rather dark path. And it's the season where I feel like I like his character the most because I feel it gives him a little bit more depth and it gives Scott Bakula more to play with. But in some ways, it's not a million miles away from Jack Bauer because Jack Bauer is not, he's not a James Bond. He's not a kind of cold, calculating, uh, callous person. He's a family guy. He's a good dad. He's a sort of, you know, uh, intermittently good husband. He, he He's a really, you know... It, on an off day, <laughs> other than these like nine days when we've met him, he seems like he'd be a really nice guy to hang around with. It's just that he also is capable of like switching on the, the sort of psycho factor and, uh, <laughs> and going all, you know, special ops murderers. But in some ways, I feel like there's a kind of parallel there. They're, they're both these actually quite nice guys at the heart of it. I think there's, there's an interesting element where for me, I think you always think of something like people talk about Voyager and it kind of completely collapsed in on its like promise of being the show that was out there and it was two teams coming together, um, you know, to overcome the odds and everyone was best friends within a couple of episodes. Whereas Enterprise also made this, that same sort of feeling where it was going to be the show all about the first mission and, you know, going out there, nothing ever kind of worked, but it became a very safe place. You know, I recently rewatched Enterprise and Lockdown. And it's like, it very much gets rid of that quite quickly and becomes like a, a further dietized version of 
um, Star Trek and Next Generation. But what I like about season three, and it's, it's something I think actually matches up really well with Discovery season one, which remains my, my favorite of the, the new series or the new Trek, is it's like season three does show up from there to here, where you have this idea that in season three, how Starfleet should behave, how a captain should operate, you know, th- those kind of decisions that they make. They car they go really hard to to the right. I mean, Archer is carrying out torturous acts. They're on suicide missions. You know, they are being really broken down. They're a ship alone out there on a tough mission, and it's all about almost you know Archer makes mistakes. You know, I think a damage, which is one of the most criminally underrated episodes of Star Trek. Period, where Archer you know strands a ship and steals from it. And then it kind of, you know, by the end of the season, he's he's feeling a lot of guilt about that, a lot of shame. And it, he realizes that he needs to be better. And, you know, season four just starts him almost resetting and recovering from that and being that captain that we should, we should, would want to see. And that's what Star Trek should be about. When you, if you're doing a prequel series, it's sometimes interesting to see how they got from there to here, where it's like the same with Discovery. I was quite excited about seeing a war captain and that he was someone that was flawed and making mistakes. And then there's a kind of a get me out. We're going, well, actually, it's from the Mirror Universe all along. Whereas there's just something more interesting about seeing a crew under stress and strain making mistakes. And then how did they become the crew and the Starfleet that we should know and respect? And I think. Season three does that really well, and it can be an easy mistake to sometimes think that the acts that they're doing are condoning it and encouraging it when it's really about they're embracing those aspects and viewing it that it's not the right way to go about things, which 24 doesn't necessarily always do. They might get the odd season, like season seven, where it's like torture is very much bad. You know, Jack Bauer, CTU should be shut down. But there's very rarely that meditative thing about going, this is bad and it should be, we should be a better society than this. They, they do it too fleetingly in 24. I think this is a big uh, topic and something that we definitely need to kind of circle back to. I mean, I, I think this question of the kind of ethics and the morality of these kind of decisions is is very uh, tricky in a way. And it's particularly tricky, you know, 20 years on, uh, we're recording at a time when, you know, the US has pulled out of Afghanistan. We've got all the kind of chaos in the wake of there. There's a, a sort of sense of, you know, what was all of this for in the first place? Um, but I do think at the time there maybe was a bit more of an attitude of it's a, it, I suppose ultimately it comes down to this question of you know do the ends justify the means and both 20 I mean 24 seems to be a show that is built pretty much on the premise that the ends justify the means uh, but but it's also built on this idea you know and I think Lorca is an interesting character because you're right there's a sense in Discovery that Lorca might be not a nice guy, but the guy we need uh, in this particular situation, until we find out that he's a moustache-dwelling villain and so on, that there's a sense that maybe he is a kind of leader that we haven't seen in Star Trek up till now, but may actually be sort of necessary on some level. And I think with Jack Bauer, there's this sort of weird um, question of, do we need a Jack Bauer? You, you know, there's sort of an acknowledgement in the show, I think, that you or I or the majority of us are not capable of the kind of things that he's capable of. And particularly in season seven, when you've got the character of Renee Walker, uh, who becomes his sort of, you know, kind of sidekick and then later a love interest, uh, played, incidentally, the, the one of a great many uh, future Star Trek stars uh, by the woman who's going to be the new Borg queen. Um, great, you know, one of many great uh, sort of supporting characters in 24 but i think with her there's a real kind of sense of like um 
she's doing things a little bit more by the book, but she's sort of getting sucked into Jack's way of doing things and being sort of slightly corrupted by him. And there is this sort of pervasive sense in 24, I think, of maybe we need a Jack Bauer, but maybe no one really wants to be Jack Bauer. And and we kind of want someone else to do that stuff and to cross those lines. And we want to keep our hands clean. And I suppose that's one of the reasons that I think it's so fascinating is that it's a show that is not just about the kind of anti-terrorism. It's not just spooks, if you know what I mean. It's also got this whole political strand. And in every season, it plays out in different ways with all these different presidents that we see. None of them seem to last very long for one reason or another. Um, and how they sort of negotiate that and the political imperative. And you have, you know, someone like uh, the, the female president, Taylor, who is a real, real sort of idealist. And she ends up with her hands dirty as well. You know, there's this kind of sense that no one can kind of keep themselves as clean as they want to. Maybe Jack is the kind of the one who's honest about it and who's, you know, happy to say, yes, I do kill people. I do torture people. I do do X, Y and Z. But, you know, there's always a good reason for it. I suppose that's what he would say is that, that the ends always justify the means. He's kind of like the, um, you know, the idea of the trolley problem, you know, this kind of thought experiment uh, where you have a, a, a train or a trolley that's that's running off on its own and it's going to um, kill uh, five people. Uh, on the on the track but you can pull a lever and change it so that it only kills one person but then you're the one who's who's sentenced that person to death jack bauer is basically that trolley problem kind of turned into a human being and he will always pull the lever no matter how difficult anyone else finds it he he's the guy who is capable of doing that um but i suppose that's part of the the question for the viewer and for the writer writers is you know a, are we capable of doing that ourselves? B, do we want someone else to do it for us or not? Uh, and what's what does that mean if we're basically saying there are certain things that we want done, but we are not able to sort of justify doing ourselves? So, so I, do, I do feel that both Enterprise Season 3 and 24, to some extent, engage with these questions. And that's not to say that they don't both also fall down on a very hawkish kind of very... Um, uh, you know, in some ways sort of unenlightened uh, standpoint on that. But I do think they kind of raise the questions and certainly with 24 as it goes on, by the time you get to the later seasons, interestingly, season seven, which is when Manny Cotto and Brandon Varga, I think, come on board 24 coming off of Enterprise, you get this real sort of interrogation of that. So you get Jack effectively on trial in the Senate. You get these new rules. You get this kind of sense of... Uh, yes, we don't, we don't go along with all that stuff anymore. The enhanced interrogation, the rendition, all this kind of stuff that we associate with that kind of the Bush era and the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Suddenly there's been a kind of pendulum swing and that is out of favour. But then, of course, the narrative is going to force Jack to do it anyway, uh, even if it's kind of off the books. I think it's one of those things. I think it's really important to actually talk about Manny Koto because I think he's, he was someone that's considered a bit of a, a savior of, of enterprise. I mean, he sort of came on and did a little bit of work in, in seasons five and, and six of 24, but season seven and, and eight was when he really, you know, had his influence. And I think it's important to think about Manny Koto because I think there's always this preconception about Star Trek that it is a very liberal show and the people involved in it are, are, are idealists about the future. Manny Koto is a bit of an, an outlier and he's one of these rare Star Trek people that is also a proud conservative. Um, and he's one of those people where I think that helps add to the, like you can see that influence on season seven of 24 and um, season three of Enterprise where it's very much like, 
Jack Bauer, Jonathan Archer. It's like the ends justify the means. You know, both main characters are taking a huge personal toll. You know, they're taking it all on their shoulders um, as the people around them are sort of like trying to moralize, you know, what that should be done and the right thing. And I mean, Manikoto is you think of some people like say like take Brandon Bragg a former guest on on this show and Nicholas Meyer you know huge you know um liberal kind of people and so on and, and talk about the work that they they do and things like that but then you think of like someone like Manny Cotto what he did after the show you know you have someone like Nicholas Meyer went on to write books Brandon Braga went on to do like um what's it called the Seth MacFarlane show, The Orville, etc. All these people go on, Ira Stephen Bear, all these people, they go on to do other sci-fi shows. Bizarrely, um, I've always found it an interesting thing. So kind of a few years after Enterprise, Manny Cotto was like the, one of the, the writers, he did some acting and like the, um, one of the kind of co-producers on a show that was called The Half Hour News Hour, which is a great title, but it was a satirical show on Fox News, which poked fun at sort of liberals and liberal news and broadcasting. So it only lasted a couple of a couple of seasons. So there was things like they had a recurring sketches. One was called like The Conspiracy Corner, where people sort of are left-wing, hold, hold, hold left-wing stereotypical views. There was... um where there's the one was one called Guy White, Closet Conservative. It was like a cartoon featuring a conservative man working in an office where everyone's liberal. There was like the I am the ACLU, which was like mocking sort of the ACLU, which always hatched onto liberal causes and so on. Like he, and it would make fun of things like climate change, a lot of things. So a lot of the things that would be like inherent Star Trek values and views, which are maybe a little antiquated, a little, you know, dated or something like that, but the values you tend to associate with Star Trek at its best were being kind of skewered by this half hour news show, which was, you know, by Manny Koto. And also it was um, created by Joe Cerno, who was the producer of 24. And his like argument was that this was a show that was like the daily show for conservatives. And he went, you can turn on any show and see Bush being bashed. There really is nothing out there who, for those who want satire that tilts right. So you almost get the impression that Hollywood, Star Trek is very liberal, liberal elite. But these are two characters figures, you know, in Joel Cerno, who you see him pretty much credited in every episode of 24, and Manny Cotto, who really made a huge influence on Star Trek as being conservative figures that, in a, in a sense, delivered fantastic TV shows and sort of skewed what we thought of what what our heroic hero should be in the form of Jack Bauer and then what a captain should be in that journey in something like Star Trek. And maybe there'd been a lack of those voices in something like Star Trek to perhaps skew things a little bit in the other way to make it more of a journey. That is fascinating. I, I certainly didn't know that about Manny Koto and that is quite surprising, I have to say, in a way. I mean, it's interesting. It sort of puts into perspective uh, some of the stuff with Jack Bauer as well, because... Um, well, well, first of all, I think it's important to say there is a tendency to see these things kind of along political lines as, you know, liberal or conservative issues or whatever. But I, I think in some ways that is oversimplifying it. I mean, it was a Labour government that, uh, you know, took us into Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. And it wasn't at the time... It's true that a lot of the resistance to that and the resistance to the war was coming from the left, but it's it's absolutely not the case. I don't think that the left and right were kind of um, clearly uh, for and against, if you know what I mean, in that, in that period, kind of 
particularly sort of immediately after 9-11. I think it was a lot more complicated than that in a way. Um, and it kind of brings me to this question, you, you know, you said Archer makes various mistakes. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be the hawk in this conversation necessarily, but I don't know whether Archer makes mistakes. Certainly Archer does things that no other Star Trek captain has ever done. Uh, or, and particularly he does things knowingly. I mean, I think there's a, there's a kind of, um, distinction. Sometimes other Star Trek captains, we've seen them right at the end of their tether. We see Janeway kind of, you, you know, pulling a similar trick to Archer, basically waterboarding that guy in the airlock. Uh, but she is, you know, kind of losing it by that point with the situation she's in. We've seen Cisco uh, do terrible things in, in the pale moonlight, but he was kind of being duped by Garrick. He wasn't totally, on board uh, with what was going on. He, he he was kind of on a slippery slope. Archer is the only one really who has to justify and um, make those decisions beforehand. So there's that scene in Damage where he basically says to Phlox, I'm about to do something really awful. Uh, and, you, you know, it, it's not like it's in the heat of the moment. It's a cold, calculated decision that that's what he needs to do. Obviously, those are terrible things. You, you know, he, he steals the warp coils from, uh, that poor guy and his ship. He, one of the things I think is the, the most shocking is when they, they kill those, uh, Zindi who are on like a, a listening station or something because they're like, you know, they might detect us. Um, and it is very much the sort of, it is kind of what Jack Bauer or someone would do, you know, go into a building and slit the throats of three guys, uh, because he couldn't get past them any other way or whatever. And it, it does feel very cold and very kind of, um, it's very unstarfleet, but that's partly because Star Trek normally will write around. It wouldn't write its central characters into, uh, a situation like that in any other scenario than in season three of Enterprise, really. So it kind of puts Archer in these impossible situations. And there's this kind of mantra throughout the series, throughout season three of Enterprise. Um, I didn't have any choice. There wasn't any choice. This was the only thing I could do. You, you know, there are various kind of riffs on this. Archer says it over and over and over again. I didn't have any choice. You weirdly you get other characters echoing it. So, uh, the reptilian who kills, um, Degra, uh, finally says something along the same lines. I think he says, I, I didn't have any choice. You know, I had to kill you. The terrorist leader in chosen realm, uh, very much leaning into that kind of Muslim suicide bomber, uh, kind of model there. He says he, I don't know if he says he didn't have any choice, but he talks about what I have to do. I had to do this. Uh, and he, and he talks about having a hard choice because he, and in his case, that involves killing a child. You, you know, there's this kind of constant refrain throughout the season of this idea of, having a choice, having no choice, having to make the hard choice. Uh, you know, interestingly, in, in 24, there's a line in season eight of 24. I wrote this down where Jack Bauer says to kind of justify something that he's done. He says, I didn't see another choice. And that I think is kind of, I don't feel he would have said that in the first five, six seasons of that show. I feel that is almost a sign of that kind of slight slippage to interrogating these questions, you know, saying I didn't see another choice. That That's kind of what I'm saying, I suppose, with 20 years of hindsight about that era that these things stem from is that, it, it, you know, that maybe things seemed a certain way then. And with hindsight, we see them differently. Um, but that's quite a different statement. And I don't know. I mean, I don't, it, it makes me wonder though, when you say that stuff about Manikoto, I mean, if what you're suggesting is Manikoto is like a proper hawk uh, <laughs> and very much on Jack Bauer's side and there's no question about it, it does make me wonder because by the end of season eight, that's when Jack, I think, really does go too far 
by anyone's books. I mean, he basically becomes the Punisher. You know, he goes on this kind of rampage, murdering people. You know, he's off he's off his mission by that point. He's kind of off his trolley. He's, he's just going and killing loads of people. Um, he has kind of gone full psycho by that point. I don't know whether Archer really... Does Archer ever go too far in the way that Jack, I would say, does? I'm not sure that he does. I think he does do terrible things, but that is his mission. There is a very good reason uh, for them. You know, if you think of it in terms of the trolley problem, he's always sort of saying, "I've, you know, seven million people are dead. I've got to save the entire population of Earth. You know, the fact is, I mean, would, you know, is that not what we'd want? Do you know what I mean? It, it, realistically, if the whole planet was in peril and, and these things were necessary, I'm sounding a bit like Garrick here, but, you, you know, if it means killing a few people here or doing this thing here or doing or stealing this, uh, you know, committing piracy or whatever there, the fact is... We do, we do want that person to do that. We don't want him to come home and say, "Oh, yeah, there was a way of saving the planet, but I um I chose not to do it because I thought it was wrong." Uh, so I don't know. I, I feel like these. The, I, I'm not convinced that Archer really. Do I want to say this? <laughs> I'm not totally convinced that Archer does anything wrong exactly or makes any mistakes, as you put it. It other than that, obviously, you could say maybe the writers. It, maybe it was unfair of the writers to put that character in those sort of no-win scenarios. I mean, he he basically, he faces the kind of a, a version of the Kobayashi Maru on a kind of moral level. He gets these no-win scenarios and there isn't a convenient uh, way out. He he does have to follow through with the kind of unacceptable decisions. But ultimately, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that we're supposed to judge him too harshly. And I sort of assumed we were meant to think by the end of season eight of 24 that Jack had kind of gone off the rails. But who knows, maybe from what you're telling me about Manny Kota, maybe we're not, maybe <laughs> maybe he's on Jack's side. I don't know. Um, but obviously there's a kind of spectrum here and there's that, you know, these are, I think there are issues that both shows do put up for debate. And to some extent, the people who criticise season three of Enterprise and say it's too hawkish and it's too, uh, you know, it's not Star Trek. I can see that. I understand that. I think that is, I, I think personally, that is a mixture of the kind of politics of the time and the mood of the time, uh, when that probably seemed more normalized than maybe it does with the benefit of hindsight. And I think it's also maybe that you do have to acknowledge these questions are raised. Archer does feel guilty. You know, there's a whole episode where he kind of has to deal with his, his guilt and his shame about the things that he's done. Um, it's not, it's not just kind of gung ho and, and neither is 24, to be perfectly honest, as much as people would, you know, I think justifiably criticize it for slightly glamorizing, uh, that sort of hawkish response. Uh, it's not quite so black and white either. There is, there is definitely an awareness that these issues are, are difficult, uh, ethically, um, and, and that people may have different opinions on them and that where the, the lines are is not always 100% clear. I think what's interesting when we think of these shows as like post 9-11 shows, I think if we take Enterprise season three, which like kind of kicked off in sort of 2000, summer of 2003, I almost think of this show as almost like it's a response to that kind of 9-11 reaction where I think you could almost have it where people like Bauer, Archer were being celebrated as like gung-ho, going in, getting the job done, take no prisoners. And if they caused your enemy a bunch of, you know, pain and hassle along the way, that was no bad thing. You know, by sort of 2003, that was the beginning of the war in Iraq where 
it could be argued that the choice to invade Afghanistan was a bit more of a a black and white decision. You could sort of understand the rationale behind it. Whereas you think of... um, when you have it with like there was six to, i think there was about nearly 11 million people around the world protesting about an eventual war with iraq in sort of february of 2003 and then sort of you know months later baghdad quote-unquote falls in april and then by the end of the december time you know saddam hussein's captured was you kind of watch these shows where it become they're very black and white almost but those sort of seasons, as they kind of go on and 24 goes on, they become a lot more grayer. You know, people sort of, you, you think of like things like the approval ratings for someone like George Bush, considered probably one of the most loathed and derided, derided presidents in history, probably of even up until Trump. He was someone that in that post 9-11 world, through the roof, he could do no wrong, you know, consensus on both sides of the aisles. But as time went on and something like Iraq kind of split things, even for someone like Tony Blair, you know, the Labour, you know, the Labour Party has never really recovered from that. You know, that grayer period has really tainted a lot of of those people involved much more than sort of that post 9-11 into Afghanistan and you kind of see that in the show where they are grappling with what is right what is wrong and you know you make an excellent point where you talk about in Azati Prime when they bomb that Zindi listening post even the way it's shown up on the the view screen is almost like that old Gulf War style footage that we were seeing a lot of the time of like the missile going down and the explosion you know we're not seeing it from the planet but we're seeing it from the people's point of view it was that first sort of war on, on TV really on on cable TV, sorry. And I think twenty four does, you know, it, it, in terms of the political side of it, you know, it shows us a number of different leaders. It shows us some terrible presidents. It shows us at least two, uh, I would say, really idealised presidents uh, in President Palmer and President Taylor. But they both, as I say, they both end up with their hands dirty. You know, there is this kind of sense. Uh, uh, I mean, insofar as I suppose, you know, Bush is not. I think an idealized <laughs> uh, president. Obviously, for many people who voted for him, maybe he was. But I, I think even by sort of Republican standards, he was not really one of their better uh, representatives, if you know what I mean. But I think these the the presidents in twenty four are a mixture of the kind of um, you know the sort of noble and heroic uh, through to the properly sleazy and um, shambolic. And interestingly, actually, you know, one of the most fascinating, I think, is President Logan, who becomes um, a, an antagonist, essentially, in the show. Rather, Usually the show is built around Jack having some kind of a relationship with the president and um, they're sort of working, broadly speaking, towards the same ends. Whereas Logan is, is so kind of dodgy, he ends up effectively working against Jack. Um, but then you've got this interesting dynamic in the later seasons where Logan comes back as this sort of, uh, he's like the devil on the shoulder of the of the uh, good president, if you know what I mean. You've got this real kind of Cisco Garrett dynamic there of the sort of expedient uh, advisor who is just gently, gently leading the decent person to, you know, it, it is the idea of a slippery slope there, I think, that, you know, which Topol talks about in Enterprise. You know, she says to Archer when he's going to commit that act of piracy, she says something along the lines of, you, you know, with each with each step, it gets easier. You're, you're kind of starting off down a very dark road, essentially. 
Um, and that is kind of what happens, you, you know, with someone like Logan, who's just saying, well, you know, I can I can sort of sort this thing out for you and I'll, I'll just make a few calls and you don't really need to know anything about it. And then you find out someone's been murdered or, you, you know, something appalling has happened. Um, and she's totally implicated in it uh, by that point, you know, very much like Cisco, as I say, in, in the pale moonlight. Um, so I suppose there's this kind of, obviously in Star Trek, our central character is is the captain in a sense. Um, they're sort of the hero. They're the one whose moral dilemma we're focused on. I think in 24, it's quite interesting the way they're able to split it. So the, the central character is Jack, but then there's always this other sort of secondary protagonist in a way of the president or sometimes a, an antagonist of the president who also has their own agenda and their own goals and they're, um, and they're going to be sucked in and affected by by what's going on, um, and they're not—they're not as kind of pragmatic necessarily as Jack is. They're—they're they're much more, in some ways, maybe they're more a cipher for the viewer. They're the one who is kind of suddenly finds they're slightly unsure, or they're slightly ambivalent about what the right thing to do is, or that there's some kind of complexity to it. So I do think the show maybe doesn't get enough credit for raising those issues. I mean, part of the problem, though, I think, is that inevitably the dictates of narrative mean you know and this is true of enterprise as well okay so jack bauer tortures people uh we don't like that in the real world we don't like the idea of torturing people we think that's wrong uh, i mean uh, i think that's wrong that is wrong on the other hand if a nuclear bomb is about to go off in 20 minutes maybe it's a bit less wrong and you know you kind of think well this is an exceptional circumstance now, Jack Bauer always tortures the right person, always gets the information he needs, always, you know, the only time that one of them ends up dying, it turns out it was because someone else sabotaged it uh, in order to off them. Um, the ends do justify the means. The problem is in reality, obviously, you torture people, you get unreliable information, it doesn't give you the answers you need. Sometimes you torture the wrong people. Um, but these are kind of messy, murky things that are a thriller TV show like this is not really going to go into. Um, and I think similarly with Enterprise, you know, every terrible thing that Archer does has the desired effect and he ends up saving Earth. You know, if he did all those things and he didn't save Earth, that would be quite a different outcome. Or if he did those things and some of them were just completely pointless and didn't, didn't achieve anything, again, that would send a sort of different message. I think there's a problem partly with the kind of the narrative formula of the storytelling that we sort of need those things to lead to a, a kind of an outcome. And then that is a kind of justification for them in a sense, if only on a sort of narrative level, they're justified because they push the plot in a certain direction that is, you know, aligning broadly speaking with what we as the viewer want to happen. Um, and I think that that makes it hard for these issues to be kind of given a fair debate in a sense. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, say, with capital punishment, people are more maybe in tune with the idea of, okay, sometimes you execute the wrong person and then you've killed them and there's nothing you can do about that. And, and that is a strong argument against capital punishment. If you only ever execute the right person, uh, I still wouldn't approve of capital punishment, but it's a harder case to make. Do you know what I mean? Like you've, you've, you've lost a big part of the argument there in some ways. Um, and I think that's maybe part of the problem with these shows that they're slightly trapped by a formula and kind of narrative formula that in itself somewhat justifies these things that are 
morally very, um, you know, at best questionable and at worst reprehensible. It's interesting. They're almost when you kind of think about the reaction now to to Star Trek, like Deep Space Nine, a, pre, a post nine eleven show in a pre nine eleven world. You know, we've all heard that one. But you know, more people as time has gone on have come and found that season, that show, and fallen in love with it. And then you almost think of it the time where. I remember there was just so much love for season three of Enterprise, and I still think it's a fantastic season. Um, but it seems that there's more a more critical eye that's been cast over it as time has gone on, as you know, new generations of fans come in, as we perhaps reflect on sort of those impulses that we had in that post nine eleven world, where it was about just going out there, getting revenge, you know, capture people in dead or alive. You know, it, it really plays to some of those base instincts that were probably ingrained in viewers at the time even probably as we pointed out you know bush's approval rating you know it was bipartisan support you know for for a lot of these wars and things that were going on you know people that would historically not be cheering on a captain torturing someone in an airlock were perhaps doing that and i think as time's gone on new fans have come in and they've brought a really unique perspective where they go what were you guys thinking back in those early 2000s? And perhaps those of us at the time were going, you know, what? I maybe misjudged that wrong. Maybe, you know, the people that were protesting or that behavior was wrong. Or maybe you're someone like me that looks at it and goes, it's a really good interpretation of this was bad behavior, but it was about getting from there to here almost, which it was the, the point of the show and the song it is about. But I think it's interesting when you think about season three of enterprise it's the only season that's not got um admiral forest in it you know enterprise is very much a ship alone so they're kind of left to their own devices to indulge in some of these kind of acts and you know there's not many people holding them back whereas in 24 you've often got jack bauer is almost handcuffed by bureaucracy democracy you know all these different players on you know presidents senators you know, the agencies and different agencies within agencies that are kind of holding him back that he's got to push and rally against. Whereas we almost just see someone like Archer pushing against what he believes is the right and wrong thing to do. And you talked about that great episode of Zati Praia Damage, where T'Pol is like, you know, you've justified this once, you know, we're not going to be like those pirates. That's what they all say. But even T'Pol falls into line very, very quickly in that episode where they still go off and bloody loot the ship in the end and she helps with it. So it, it's really interesting when you think about, you know, you sometimes think of perhaps a show like 24, maybe someone like Manikoto, where they, they are arguing against that bureaucracy, the democracy that sometimes that checks and balances on people being able to go rogue and do whatever they like, I guess. Mm. Well, Jack, of course, has to go rogue quite a lot of the time. I mean, although we start with season one with him, I think he's the head of CTU at that point, isn't he? I can't remember. He, he, he kind of, he, he keeps he basically off, being... Right. Okay. But he was previously head of, I don't know. Anyway, he, he has been sort of part of the system, but fairly early on in the series, he is kind of out and then he, he gets called back in for one reason or another, but often it's uh, unofficially or he's undercover or he's, you, you know, no one really knows where he is or which side he's on. Uh, I mean, you, you know, he's very much a rogue agent uh, to the point that in the later seasons, there's this sort of question about, um, Maybe actually earlier, I think, is it Palmer who is the first one who talks about pardoning him? There's always this question of, you know, can he be rehabilitated? Can he be pardoned? You know, because obviously the president can wipe away, you know, can wipe clean his slate to some extent. But there is a sense that Jack is, Jack is not just morally, uh, tarnished. He is 
uh, legally tarnished. He's internationally a diplomatic hot potato. You know, he has to be handed over to the Chinese. He has to be handed over to the Russians. Everyone wants their kind of chance to, uh, you know, get their revenge on him in a sense. Uh, can he be pardoned? Can he be rehabilitated? Can he be kind of, uh, welcome back into the fold other than in this rather hostile way as a witness in this kind of Senate, uh, investigation into, um, you know, war crimes or, or unacceptable uh, behaviour in in counterterrorism and so on. Archer, on the other hand, you know, you're right, it's all very internalised to the extent that even when Archer comes back to Earth, uh, they're naming schools after him, they're having parades in his honour, they're, you know, he's making big speeches and so on. And for him, it's this sort of psychological thing of this sort of mismatch between the person that he's being presented as and the gratitude that he's receiving and the kind of self-loathing that he's internalised and the sense that he is not the man that he thought he was. So, you know, he, over the course of that mission, his opinion of himself has gone down massively and everyone else's has gone up in a sense. Um, I don't feel we really get that with Jack. I feel like Jack is quite, to be honest, he's kind of made peace with all this stuff when we first meet him, really, I mean, you know, he's pretty ruthless. He's pretty, he, that's the job. He does what he's told. Uh, he protects the president. He follows orders as long as they're good orders and not bad ones. Um, he's very much, you know, he can, he can live with it. I suppose that's the thing, you know, Cisco has, has that line, you know, I can live with it. Can he live with it or not is the big question. Uh, Jack does seem to be able to live with it. And that's what is so, unique about him and that's why they need him on some level and that's why every season a crisis comes up and Jack Bauer is going to be the guy you have to get in because no one else is able to to do this stuff um and there is this sort of interesting question in 24 you know is is that is that a good thing is that a bad thing is there something wrong with him why is it that he can do these things that everyone else struggles with you know he is sort of unique but he's unique by virtue of being all, he is almost a psychopath. He is almost kind of morally uh, a bit of a vacuum on some level. Um, although there there are some lines he doesn't cross, uh, but the show will fool you into thinking he's crossed them. So, for example, there's the season where he appears to execute a child, and I was sort of watching that, thinking, "Oh my god, you know, he's not. He can't possibly have really done that." But they do. They do really kind of convince you that's what's happened. And it turns out it was a fake out. So occasionally there there are lines where he will. Um, present himself as being willing to go even further than he is, but he is willing to go pretty far. You know, he kills a lot of people. There's that one where he chops off a guy's head because he needs to use it for some purpose or other. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he is the guy who will like, uh, he will go as far as you can imagine and then, and then some and then some and then some. You know, he's, there's, there's no limits, I suppose. It feels like, um, as far as he's concerned, he's just surrounded by all these other people sort of gawping at, you know, what he's willing to do next. But I suppose in, in some ways you could say that is almost a satire on something, on our kind of attitude towards, you know, uh, what we expect other people to do on our behalf. I mean, to me, th this might seem a leap to you, I don't know, but it crosses my mind, you know, as someone who uh, doesn't eat animals because I wouldn't want to kill animals and I don't think it's the right thing to do. There's an element of that, isn't there? With, you know, people, there are a lot of people who are willing to eat animals, but not kill them. And they expect someone else to do that for them. And I do think there's an argument that, you know, is, is that a kind of hypocrisy? Is that a sort of a flaw somehow? Um, 
In the case of Jack Bauer, I don't know. I don't know if it's hypocritical to say that you want someone else to carry out, you know, assassinations, but you don't want to do it yourself. I mean, that's that seems quite kind of reasonable on one level, but that is what he represents somehow. Um, I mean, in the context of Star Trek, I suppose he's he's more Section Thirty One than he is. You know, he, he's not the captain of a starship. He is the you know, he's the Section Thirty One agent or the Tal Shiar or the you know. Obsidian Order or whatever it is. Um, but I suppose, I don't know. It's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, I don't like Section 31 in Star Trek, I, partly because I like Star Trek to be quite utopian, I think. Um, and I can see why some people didn't like Season 3 of Enterprise. Uh, John Billingsley even didn't like Season 3 of Enterprise. He, he, he I've got a quote from him. He, he said it essentially argued the ends justify the means. And I had a hard time with that. I found the whole season problematic. Um, and that's coming as a long-time Star Trek fan. On the other hand, I have to say, I think for Enterprise, um, for me, it's by far the best season of Enterprise. I think it, it doesn't hit all the right notes. It doesn't always succeed. It's not quite as slick as 24 manages to be. Uh, they drop the ball a few times. There are a few clunker episodes. There are a few, quite a lot of random digressions that don't go anywhere. Uh, but I think it really, it was a really bold attempt to do something different for that show. And it made that show, to me, a lot more interesting. Um, whether I entirely agree with everything about it politically or kind of um, artistically, I, I feel it was, you know, it was a big swing. It was a kind of, it was an attempt to do something different. And I think, you know, that came largely from Brown and Braga. I think he should be sort of celebrated for that in some ways. Um, and, you know, it was a bold it was a bold attempt to do something different with Star Trek and to, you know, tackle this kind of, you know, to do the sort of rip from the headlines stuff. And and maybe it was slightly blinkered by the um, environment at the time and the kind of prevailing attitudes at the time. But that is a kind of, there's an element of, you, you know, there's a truth in that as well. And I think it's, uh, you know, we sort of need to see it in that context somehow. And actually looking at it in parallel with 24 is not a bad way of doing that because 24 is a show that has a lot of those problems. I mean, uh, some people won't watch 24. They think it's kind of hawkish propaganda. And, you, you know, why would you uh, watch that terrible show? I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Uh, I'm, you know, uh, that's, it doesn't necessarily align with well, I say, I was going to say it doesn't align with my beliefs, but then I feel like I'm sort of pushing this sort of pragmatic line of maybe we do need a Jack Bauer out there somewhere. I don't know. But, um, I don't think you have to be, let's say you don't have to be Manikoto to enjoy 24. I think you can, you can enjoy it on many different levels. And it is, you know, it is a very successful show and a brilliant show in nothing, if nothing else in, using that serialized format and the real time format and yeah it cheats now and then with the real time and and the serialization sometimes goes a bit wonky and they have to have these kind of false uh false climaxes and so on to kind of string it out to 24 episodes but it it does that in a way that i think was quite groundbreaking at the time and enterprise doing its riff on it uh pretty groundbreaking for star trek and and both of them you know turn a lot of sort of tv conventions on their head and and do a lot of interesting work just in terms of TV production at the time. Um, and I think they, I think they both should be celebrated for that, to be honest. 
I think it's always interesting to think of as well, where, you know, you think of the original series all the way through up until like the undiscovered country, like they are historically tied into the Cold War. I mean, like the undiscovered country couldn't be a bigger full stop on that period of history than anything else. And then you think of it through pretty much all of the Berman era, you know, from next generation, you know, the tail end of the Cold War up until all the way till the end of Voyager. It was very much peacetime you had a little bit of potential issues going on in sort of um, Ireland at the time that was kind of showcased in um, I think the higher ground you had the first Gulf War but it was a very much a peace in our time kind of thing that Star Trek really had never lived through so you kind of have that safe 90s Berman Trek and then even sort of into that first season of Enterprise that it carries on being part of that history. You know, so much of season one had been written kind of before sort of that 9-11 happened. Then season two, you know, a bit of an anomaly. But then season three is the first time really in a long time. And then, you know, we only get really two seasons of it where it's it's tied into the, the historical events of the time. What's happening? You know, what are the politics? What are the, the, you know, the decisions at the time? You know, racism is something we associate with Star Trek and how it tried to tackle that and episodes that made views on it. And then we have something like season three of four of enterprise specifically scene three that will vo- very much focus on what is going on in the world at the time what is enterprise trying to say how can it shine a light on what we're kind of going through and the decisions in a way that star trek really hasn't hadn't done for a good few years and then when it came back in terms of the tv show a lot of it is being based around sort of this trump era and you know things like that so it, it was i think scene three is so good in that respect of like it is a return to what the original series did for for 25 years and you know you also look at the influences on something like 24 where it is that serialized storytelling to to an extreme level yeah deep space nine did it and it touched on it with characters dropping in and now you know the, the history of deep space nine is well known but voyager very episodic i mean i know you listen to it as well the Delta flyers they always talk about how very few of the episodes ever lead into the other ones and they're always a bit surprised when something gets pulled up enterprise season one and two very much like that you know the odd little bit about the Sulaban, but nothing much and then then you kind of have that where it becomes more popular storytelling where people are seeing the success of HBO shows like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, for example, 24 serialized storytelling where people are committing to watching an entire season and then they're having to buy the box set because if you miss the episode, you've got to go back in. You know, DVRs are kicking in at the time. DVD is huge. You know, so the idea of selling an entire season of Enterprise for £70, 24 was never that expensive. It was more like £35 for a box set. But people were binging these things. It was like home video was again changing how people were able to do to you know take on in a season like that and i remember the first dvd box set i bought of a star trek series was season six of enterprise of of deep space nine because it was like that serialized i want to buy the war box set so i can really dive into things like the home entertainment how people were eating it how people were absorbing it buying it watching it binging it was really at its infancy and it it liberated Star Trek to be in a way where it wasn't just like this is a TV show that is put on into syndication and you will see the episodes at all different times and if you miss one it's okay you can dive into the next they were liberated in that because they knew people would pay the money to watch a box set like that absolutely and I mean Deep Space Nine of course is you're right is it you know is where that serialization starts in a way for Trek And, and you know groundbreaking um at the time, arguably 
led into a lot of the, you know, those shows like The Sopranos, shows like that that kind of followed, you know, the combination of Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, both doing that kind of work, really laid a lot of groundwork. But I suppose what you see in Enterprise Season 3 is this idea of the season arc as a kind of... um you know, with Discovery, they called it a novel, didn't they? They said each season is a novel. And very much with Discovery, it's very much a season arc uh, at a time, if you know what I mean. Very different mood if you think about season one versus season two versus season three. They're almost completely different shows. Um, Picard, I think, doing something kind of similar there. Uh, less so with Lower Decks, which obviously is kind of, you know, going back to the sort of more episodic uh mood of of next gen or those kind of shows but i think enterprise you you know ds9 was doing it in the kind of x-files way in that you had sort of you know in the x-files you had monster of the week episodes and you had mythology episodes and the mythology episodes sort of you know were kind of telling a story going forward ds9 is more serialized than that but at the same time it's not uh it's not just it's not just that, if you know what I mean. It's not, you, you know, you get these stretches. So you get that like six episode stretch that is totally serialized. You get that 10 episode stretch at the end that is really properly, uh, serialized. But other than that, you get kind of episodes here and there about different stuff. And sometimes it's to do with the war and sometimes it isn't. Um, more, I think, in that kind of X-Files mold. Whereas 24 and, and Enterprise season three was definitely going for this kind of 24 model of, you know, there's a see, there's a story for the season. Uh, and, and often in, uh, 24, what that meant is that they actually couldn't stretch one story the whole season. They end up having like your big bad for the first half of the season gets off and then you have to have a new big bad who was behind that one. Um, and in some ways Enterprise does the same thing because it seems to be, it's all going to be about the Zindi and then it becomes about the sphere builders. Um, and then it becomes all about the sphere builders and kind of, uh, working out what's going on with them. And it's sort of, it has to pivot a bit in terms of, you know, who the enemies are, what the real kind of, um, what the mission is, I suppose, what, you know, what exactly is going on, what the kind of, um, uh, what the sort of situation is that they're dealing with. Um, maybe that's something that is almost inherent in these kind of long arcs. I mean, especially when they're not written and planned out ahead of time. I don't know if you saw that show Murder One. That was another amazing show of around that era, probably slightly before 24, I would say. And that at the time seemed completely groundbreaking um, in that that was a courtroom drama, but it took one story from beginning to end over 24 episodes. And it was just incredibly complex and knotty and complicated and uh you know, and you only got to the bottom of things by the end, a bit, a bit like you saw later with the killing or something like that. You know, these kind of procedural storytelling formats, but spread out in that long, detailed, intricate way. Um, and I think that is absolutely the goal with serialization in Star Trek now. I think that was kind of the goal with Enterprise season three. It, it, I feel like it mostly worked, though there were a few, you know, bumps along the way. I think you could say the same about Picard where it feels quite, it feels very serialized, but then there are a few random, uh, sort of bumps along the way. I think you could certainly say the same, um, maybe discovery that the issues are slightly different ones. It's not so much that it gets off course, but that's, that, that it can be quite hard. It is quite hard to, um, work out how to tell these stories. And as much as that seems to be what's in vogue these days, it's surprising how often shows, struggle with it. So for example, the Marvel series on Netflix, they all sort of had this problem where, and, and they were fantastic, you know, some of those are fantastic shows. I mean, something like Jessica Jones, I think one of the best shows, you know, made in the last whatever, 10 years. Um, 
uh, Daredevil as well. Fantastic show. But they, they always seem to have this problem that they would commit to whatever, a 13 episode season. And it felt like they had enough plot for about nine episodes. Uh, and I think Picard is a bit of a weird one. They, they've, they sort of either they had too much plot or too little. And, and somehow it feels like it's, it's not always kind of doled out, uh, quite in the way that you you might like, or the, or the pacing becomes very sort of inconsistent. I think at least um, something like 24, it is quite formulaic. There is a real sense of like, you know, as well as the 24 hours of a season, you've got the, every hour has to have, you know, a crisis towards the end and, and it has to have the, you know, it's got the cliffhangers baked in with the act breaks and the fact that it's all in real time and that the act breaks take up part of the time, which I never realised until I, it t- took me about two and a half seasons even watching it recently before I kind of clocked because I was sort of thinking it's weird isn't it you know they, they talk about it being an hour but in fact you know we know it's only 45 minutes those of us who watch TV without commercials um, and then I sort of realised oh actually that you know sometimes they can use those app breaks because stuff can happen off screen in that time um, but I suppose that does that does impose a kind of a formula in a sense and it does impose a sort of um a, a sense that it's not episodic, but it, it gives it a kind of episodic shape in some ways. Um, and all TV needs that to some extent. You, you know, you can't just write a 10 hour story and divide it up, uh, a, you, you know, every time the, the minutes stop, like you were doing. Um, did you ever watch Nightmare, that, that show Nightmare, the kind of game show where yes. you put this helmet on? Uh, and they always used to very frustratingly when the, the clock, donged whatever it was whether they were at a moment of high intensity someone was about to you know fall off a cliff whether they'd literally only got started they were like right that's the end see you next week uh and it was really frustrating but it was totally arbitrary it was like you know it would get to 28 minutes or whatever it is and then the game would stop uh for the next time it, it can't be like that with these kind of tv shows they do have to be structured both by the season and by the episode um and i don't know i i think Season three of Enterprise does it pretty well. I think at 24, for the most part, does it pretty well. Uh, but they both do also fall down these kind of rabbit holes. I mean, uh, funnily enough, I was watching, uh, season four episode of Enterprise Home, which is where Archer really kind of grapples with all this, uh, guilt and, and shame and stuff over what he's done. And there's a little reference in there to a mountain lion. When he goes hiking with Captain Hernandez, uh, they see the, the portrait of a mountain lion and, I almost fell off my chair. I was thinking, you know, is this, because I was thinking about it in terms of 24, is this a deliberate dig? Because the, there was famously in season two, is it season two? I think 24. Yeah, season two. There was this, like for hours, it seems, Kim Bauer, Jack's daughter, is just stuck in the wilderness with a mountain lion. <laughs> it's the most random, uh, like transparent attempt to fill up some screen time with something that really is not going anywhere and to give this character something to do because uh, she was popular in the first season and they, they needed to find a way to kind of keep her in it. Um, I don't know, it kind of, it, it almost seemed like, is that some kind of a dig or something to like reference, <laughs> reference you know, wrap up this season-long storyline and then throw in the portrait of a mountain lion. It just seems like such a weird thing to do. Um but I suppose that, that, that is the mountain lion is kind of stands in for everything that can go wrong with that kind of storytelling. Um, and season six of 24 again is the kind of, that's the season where it did go off the rails and, uh, the show almost completely lost itself and they really had to pull themselves together after that. It, it shows how hard it can be to do this sort of serialized storytelling and not to have it kind of run away with itself in a sense. 
I think it was seasons like season six. I mean, I remember just watching that at the time and it was just, it starts interestingly enough and then it just goes really, really poor. Um, but what I really like about, say, season seven is there was a writer's strike between six and seven and it was, season seven was hugely delayed, which gave them a chance to actually plan out, you know, a lot of the twists and turns and the scope for the season. Whereas I think a lot of the times, and you, you still see it now with the season, the shows that are successful at doing it, they have a plan in place, you know, to go, right, we're going to start here. This is where we're going to end. And we might have a few bits along the way where we will kind of see how things go, what goes on in filming, but there's a plan in place. And, you know, when that plan is not there, I think one that, you know, whether you like them or not, those Star Wars sequels, you know, that they had recently where they all were just different things and someone would do a different part. And it just, there wasn't a plan in place that you watch and you go, this is just all being, every movie is a reaction to the previous one for better or worse. And I think, you know, 24, when it's able to plan out like season seven, you know, even season one, season one was only meant to be 12 episodes, but the success of it meant that that first sort of bit where it wraps up like the family saved hurrah you know was essentially that was going to be the season but it became 24 so you know it it took another turn where season seven works really incredibly well you know the live another day miniseries works really well because they're able to plan it out and star trek when they have that plan in place which i'm quite hopeful for say seasons two and three of picard you know i, I like season one but it, it it is a little bit all over the place. It, you know, it's always the case with a new show. But I think season two and three, because they've now had this period of time where they could plan it, COVID has has maybe worked in their favour to maybe have a planned out season and take into things in, into account a little bit more. You're right. It absolutely shows, certainly with 24. I mean, that season six, that is the real, you know, people talk about franchise fatigue with Star Trek. That is a season that feels fatigued for 24 because it it's... It, it just like they're throwing everything at it. They, you know, Jack has this evil brother who he ends up torturing. Uh, his father turns out to be a, 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 sorry, anyone who hasn't seen this show, I'm just, you know, spoiling all the twists. So, you know, go away and watch it. Uh, but to be honest, season six, you might, you might skip because despite having Alexander Siddig in it, it is, uh, it is pretty hard going. And it even seems to break its own. Dad. Yeah, you're right. And, and James Cromwell is his dad. Yeah. Uh, cause obviously Donald Sutherland wasn't available or something, presumably. Um, but it, you know, it, and it even breaks its own rules. Cause at one point, Alexander Siddick manages to travel from, to get from New York to LA in about an hour or something. I mean, like there are, there yeah. are a few rules. If you're doing a show in real time, surely there are some things that you can't. Okay. You can, you can bend reality a little bit with you know car chases and and how fast people get across town but you can't just magically transport someone by plane you know impossible distances uh but it's sort of you know i think by that point they've kind of almost they've almost given up on the realism of it and i suppose that's that's the strength of the show is that it because of the real-time format uh because it is quite dark and and gritty and nasty and so on it, it it does have this kind of air of realism to it um that's what they're going for you know it's it's not sort of swashbuckling it's kind of uh it, it you know we are meant to feel that this is you know it is it is real on some level it, it it's kind of going for that i think um and it's when it gets too operatic uh with you know nuclear bombs going off and and stuff like that that i think maybe it loses its way a little bit. Now, obviously, Star Trek is a bit different. I mean, Star Trek is, is not as realist in a sense, but, but maybe that's what, I don't know, you know, maybe that's one of the things about season three of Enterprise is it feels, 
it feels a bit more in tune. I mean, you know, you mentioned Manny Cotto, Brandon Braga, Nicholas Meyer. Um, you know, some of these writers, not so much Brandon Braga, but some of these writers who come into Star Trek from a, with a slightly different perspective, whether that's a political perspective or creative perspective, uh, they are the ones who sort of drag Star Trek back down to earth to some extent. I mean, Nicholas Meyer, uh, you know, with the Wrath of Khan, did sort of, on one level, you could say, made a kind of realist Trek movie. Do you know what I mean? He, he made it much more kind of um, uh, tactile, much more kind of uh, gritty, much more human, much more flawed. Uh, you know, a lot of these things that you see also in, in season three of Enterprise in some ways, you know, that get away from that kind of slightly sterile utopianism. That maybe that's necessary. Maybe they're the Jack Bowers of the Star Trek franchise, you know, <laughs> Nick Meyer or, or Manny Cote or whoever, people who are going to come in and like, you know, do the stuff that Gene Roddenberry could never bring himself to do, uh, up in his, you know, nice leather chair in his office or whatever. Uh, you know, if he's the president, they're the kind of, um, you know, they're, they're the, the, the guys with the bold ideas and the, uh, willingness to, to do the unthinkable. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, these are the debates that we get with Star Trek all the time, aren't we, about, you know, this is not Star Trek. Kurtzman's Trek is not Star Trek. How could you do this? You know, Star Trek's meant to be optimistic. They killed this character. They uh, they did this thing. You know, some of these kind of debates, they, they are weirdly paralleled by these sort of fan debates about uh, the, the kind of creative decisions that are taken along the way. Yeah, and I think those are always interesting. I never have subscribed to that, like, you know, this isn't Star Trek or whatever. It's just everyone's got their own different taste. And I know some people that absolutely love season three of Enterprise, but those there's others that feel that season one and two was, you know, something special, a bit more family, a bit more easy to watch on a, you know, when they're drifting off to sleep at night. You know, it's 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 one of those things like I, I subscribe more to that all Star Trek is above average. And, you know, I'm always happy to watch any episode of Star Trek, even if it's something I think's mediocre. I've probably watched it several times, but I think Star Trek at its best, you know, whether it's on something like Primitive Culture or the type of Star Trek I'm looking for is something like a season three of Enterprise where there are debates and discussions to be had on a, a large scale about, you know, the behind the scenes involvement, you know, the historical parallels, you know, the, the writers that were involved, you know, what are they trying to say? What was it success? Was it not? You know, when you get to chat about it on a grand scale like that, you know, similar to things like the Dominion War, you know, serialized television, it it's, makes it all the more exciting and a bit more operatic for for the topics we can discuss i think sometimes absolutely there's you know we've talked quite a lot about the sort of political parallels there's also the kind of creative parallels or the tropes for want of a better word i mean there are a lot of uh partly a lot of the tropes of 24 are um you, you know are, are kind of classic thriller um sort of action adventure thriller tropes anyway um but they they are i mean the thing about 24 is it does Sometimes it does feel a bit formulaic, or at least it feels like there are certain beats that end up repeating themselves. So, you know, you have the same situation where uh, several times you have, I feel, I think this is right. It, it certainly feels like it happens several times. You know, uh, Jack is given a gun and told to kill someone, and we know that he doesn't want to kill them because they're his friends or whatever, but he has to somehow convince the, the other person that he's willing to do. You know, moments like that that just kind of play out again and again and again, and they have to find a different way out of it each time. But a lot of these tropes do find their way in season three of Enterprise. I mean, whether it's things... For a start, there's this idea of the ticking clock, 
which is there, you know, from the moment that probe explodes and they're told there's going to be another one, we know this is the season they're going to try and stop this, effectively stop this bomb from going off. Now, similarly in 24, obviously most of the stories in 24, there's something that's going to explode or, you know, so- something terrible is going to happen and there's a there's a kind of timer ticking down effectively to stop it uh, before it gets to that. Um, you mentioned the significance of self-sacrifice, suicide missions. I mean, interestingly, y- you get that on both sides uh, in both these shows. I, I mean, you know, in Enterprise, you've got, well, first of all, you've got the suicide bombers I mentioned in Chosen Realm, you know, who kind of stick those things in their arms and explode themselves. You've also got the fact the Azindi probe was not, you know, it wasn't an automated probe. It had a pilot who died, uh, you know, who was willing to sacrifice himself to kill all those people on Earth. Then you've got Archer in Azati Prime doing the same thing and basically saying, you know, someone's going to have to pilot the shuttle this is a one-way mission. I'm not going to let anyone else do it. I'm going to be the one to do it. Um, and in 24, you get, you know, numerous times Jack uh, offering to uh, go on the suicide mission and always someone else steps in, whether it's his boss who's had a fatal dose of radiation anyway and can step in. Or or you get these situations where uh, political leaders are asked to sort of offer themselves up. So um, there's the the... Uh, is the Indian leader, I think, at one point in maybe season seven or eight is, is kind of basically asked to hand himself over. Later, later you've got President Heller, uh, who, you know, is one of the kind of more sympathetic, uh, president characters, I think, who has to submit himself to a drone strike in the middle of a football stadium, doesn't he? And, and the show, you know, fakes it pretty well so that you think that he's actually been killed. And then you find out in the next episode, they, they swapped him out somehow. They managed to kind of, to fake it but you know you so you do get this sense of the 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 noble self-sacrifice trope which obviously you get in star trek anyway but it it does feel like it's particularly pronounced this idea of uh of suicide lingers over season three you even get hoshi trying to commit suicide at one point rather than help the enemy with uh you know decoding the um cracking the codes on the on the weapon or whatever it is you've also got this sort of theme of execution i mean one of the things that's so uh shocking about jack i suppose is that you, you know he he doesn't just kill people in self-defense or in a fight or, or go in all guns blazing you know he he kills people quite coldly and one of the most shocking uh moments i think is that point where he has to kill one of his colleagues basically um well if, there's a few times when he has to kill one of his colleagues but particularly he has to kill that that slightly annoying guy who's his I think he's a boss or he's from, he's from division. They always have these people who come from division. Um, and then he's, it's, you know, the, the villain is holding everyone hostage with, what is it, a bomb or a, or a virus or whatever it is at that point and, and gives Jack all these instructions. And one of them is to shoot this guy. Uh, and the guy is sort of trying to get out of it. And everyone's like, you know, is there anything else we can do? And ultimately the clock runs out and he has to kill his colleague, uh, so that the, the villain won't, um, follow through on his threat. I mean, that I think is one of the most shocking moments in the series in a way. And obviously with Archie, you kind of almost go there with Sim. Um, and, you know, Janeway had this with Tuvix. Archer has it with Sim. Archer doesn't actually have to kill Sim against his will. They have that interesting exchange, don't they, where uh, Sim says to Archie, you're not a murderer. And he says, don't make me one. And he doesn't. He kind of submits to it in the end. A, a bit like that guy, actually, to be honest, um, in 24, who you know, tries to sort of resist it. I think tries to run away, doesn't he, at one point, but then ultimately sort of accepts, yeah, you're going to have to kill me uh, because that's what the stakes dictate. But, you know, 
I don't know. So, so there are these various ways in which I think some of the tropes of 24 do feel like they're sort of bleeding into Star Trek uh, with that season of Enterprise as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose the only one that, that you know, there's a lot that you've highlighted there that crosses over with 24 and Enterprise. I suppose the one that never kind of crossed the line was, well, especially for, say, season three of Enterprise. I know there was other things elsewhere, was like a traitor in the midst or, mm. you know, someone with an ulterior motive. I mean, 24 did that to absolute death. Um, but Star Trek never went there. You know, you, you had the characters that were maybe towing the grey line, but it maybe wasn't until sort of season four with sort of when section 31 and, and Reed come in that there's any sort of consideration that any one of the crew could betray anyone else from it, that they kept that, you know, that chosen group really quite tight. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, DS9 did it with Eddington quite successfully and um, uh, and the original series movies with Valeris, uh, which would have been better, I think, if they'd gone with Savick, because was the original plan. You'd, you've got more of that. But you're right. They don't. That It's the mole in CTU. And you're right. I think of all the tropes in 24, that's the one that kind of sticks out the most, because I remember when I was watching it and I must have been at about like season four or five or something. And I put out a tweet, I said, is CTU ever not compromised? Because in pretty much every season of 24, someone has a moment where they say CTU's been compromised. And it's like, yeah, someone is is working against them. Um, and you're right, that is that is a, a trope that doesn't find its way into season three of Enterprise, interestingly. But that that may be about pretty much the only one. You know, we've got the torture, we've got the the suicide missions, we've got the execution. We've even got in the episode Stratagem, the idea of sort of going undercover and sort of trying to convince the enemy you're someone you're not or that you have a relationship with them you don't. I mean, there's a number of times where Jack has to um, basically get in with organised criminals or, you, you know, um, and convince them that he's not really working for the government or that he's not working for them anymore. Uh, and Archer sort of has a similar thing that, you, you know, is he it, that he's trying to convince Degra he's not really on his mission anymore. He's... Um, uh, you know, they've, they've failed and years have passed and, and all of this. There's a sort of elaborate bluffing and, and that kind of moment of being fed the information is, is another big element of that trope, I suppose. The, you know, having the earpiece and the, and someone asks you a question and that desperate sort of stalling while you wait for, you know, your Chloe O'Brien in the case of 24 or Hoshi Sato in the case of Enterprise to go and look up the information and try and give you the answer. And if not, you know, just try and blag it basically. And, you know, if you, if you make a guess, uh, you know, what are your chances of, of getting it right? Um, that kind of, I don't know about you. I find those situations are almost the most tense of all those kind of tropes, uh, in, in that kind of storytelling. Uh, it's the one that horrifies me the most, you know, the idea of having to kind of, uh, convince the person and, and just keep, keep up with the lie but never knowing whether you've said something that has completely incriminated you and they realise that you're, you know, a traitor or not. I mean, essentially, you, you know, you talked about the mole. There's a mole in CTU, but then Jack is also the mole uh, in all these other organisations as well. So it kind of works both ways. And I suppose the other element of that is that with Kiefer Sutherland, you've got this actor who's able to play both the very likeable side of Jack, who is this family man, who is kind of basically a decent guy, uh, who, you know, treats his love interests well and and you know tries to look after his daughter and so on but can also be uh quite scary and and you can kind of believe could work his way into these um criminal underworlds in a sense and convince these people he's he's you know part of their organization because he does have this real brutality to him 
Then you've got someone like Scott Bakula. Now, I don't know whether Scott Bakula is quite as convincing on the dark side. I mean, I do think that season three gives him some of his best stuff in Enterprise in a way, but he is more so than Kiefer Sutherland, who I think, you know, did have a bit of a wild side uh, himself in his youth anyway. I don't know whether Scott Bakula did. He doesn't, he's, he seems like a much more sort of clean cut, nice guy um, from everything we know of him. I don't know whether there's an element of, of, you know, he's the kind of squeaky clean Starfleet captain in a way, Archer, isn't he? Is there something about, um, I'm just thinking of, you know, Jack Bauer in terms of kind of a certain idea of masculinity and Archer as a sort of certain idea of masculinity, you know, is there something in those actors and in those characters that we can say is sort of, um, is feeding into that somehow, that ability to have the darkness with the kind of likable quality and and is there also something of that era because i mean a lot of people have said that archer is a sort of bush stand-in you know he's quite folksy he's quite sort of anti-intellectual he's quite kind of you know he loves watching water polo and drinking beer and kind of you, you know he's he's not a sort of elevated star trekky type person he feels like quite a sort of folksy uh 20th century 21st century kind of person i don't know is there is there something about those kind of models of masculinity, you know, compared to a James Bond or, or, or something like that, um, as, as maybe a kind of particularly sort of American version of that sort of action hero. I think what probably works with, with Archer, whereas Bauer is probably like the boogeyman. He's someone like we kind of touched on earlier where he's someone that what he does is on paper reprehensible. He tortures, he kills you know, carry such only things, but there's perhaps the argument needed that we need someone out there to have this peaceful society, probably similar to, to section 31. Whereas I think with Archer, that first two seasons, as you say, a folksy kind of guy, you know, making do, you know, he's got his own sort of perhaps bigotries in terms of the, the Vulcans, but you know, by and large, he's, he's the best of us in a way. Whereas it's interesting to chart what happens with sort of season three, where we see that sort of, we lose that touch. And, and, and that was us perhaps, you know, in that post 9-11 world, you know, the, the people that should have known better in terms of rushing off to war in um, Iraq, for example, you know, th- that kind of, patriotism that kind of lust for revenge anger want to give someone a bloody nose compromising that was that was us you know jack bauer there will always be jack bowers jack bauer existed well before 9-11 and will continue to exist you know they, they exist in the shadows they're blunt instruments you know they have their hands in the dirt and um, well all of us get to remain clean but Archer could be is the moral of what happens when, you know, good gets kind of swayed or damaged or we forget what our values and, and roots are and what we should always be about. And, you know, when explorers get turned into basically soldiers, really. That's a very interesting point. So, I mean, I think there is that kind of parallel. You know, Archer is almost performing the presidential role in 24 as much as the Jack Bauer role. You know, he's the one who's kind of the the leader who who has to be corrupted by by the orders he's given and by the decisions he's making. There's also the element that it's not all about Jonathan Archer in Enterprise Season 3, because you've also got Trip Tucker, who's another kind of quite folksy, very, you know, folksy American, kind of all-American. They're, they're both kind of these all-American guys, do you know what I mean? And they, mm-hmm. they both like their beer and their sports and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um and I think there's an element of, you know, because they personalise it for Trip with his sister being killed in this attack, 
And he's he's the one who actually, to begin the season, is the one who comes out with this kind of, uh, you know, he wants revenge. And, and he makes these quite chilling comments where he says, you know, tell me we're not going to be tiptoeing around. You know, we're not going to be pussyfooting around this, basically. Um, and he says, we're not going to be following all that non-interference crap. The non-interference crap being the Vulcan attitude, which basically becomes enshrined as the prime directive, you, you know, something totally fundamental. I mean, as much as we could debate how often it goes out the window and whether that's right or wrong or whatever, but to dismiss it as just uh, a load of crap is quite um, shocking in some ways and quite sort of arrogant. And it, it does feel a little bit like that kind of moment of, you know, okay, the UN won't sanction what we're doing. Uh, the Vulcans don't agree with it, but we're going to bloody well go and do it anyway um and there's that sense that the two of them i mean it's interesting we were talking about bush and blair i don't i don't know that blair i mean unless malcolm reed is is tony blair on the <laughs> on the deck of the enterprise uh, i don't know you know if blair quite finds his way there but it's interesting there's the two of them you know and it's kind of and Topol is very much out of that um i mean she comes along for the ride but it's not she's not invested in it it's not her planet that's under threat um, but it is, you know, it's not just Archer with the weight of the world on his shoulders. It's also Trip with his kind of, um, personal stake in it as well. And that sense, I suppose that, you know, America on 9-11, you know, got a bloody nose, uh, did suffer a terrible trauma. Um, you know, it's, it's not just about the kind of politics of it. It's also about the kind of reaction to, something so shocking and and failure as well you think of jack bauer is you know you think of like homeland security you know which obviously came around after 9-11 you know the fbi failed you know cia there was all these red flags across the board and no one saved the day whereas you kind of maybe it's maybe that sort of bedtime story you watch on a on a friday or a sunday evening watching 24 and you think oh you know, Jack Bauer's out there, things might be okay, things might be a little bit safe, where it's that little background thing in your head when, you know, the, the people that he is basically viewed as working for failed on a spectacular level. Um, and, you know, intelligence continued to fail for years after 9-11 when you think of weapons of mass destruction and, and how that plunged in, you know, it is almost an idealised, romanticised version, even at the worst, um, you know, it's it's there to go oh you know what we're pretty good you know that the hawks you know the the military the the, the thing that you know there's people like jack bauer and he's going to take what the the you know the pansies are kind of doing and stuff like that you know he's going to own the own the libs or whatever kind of thing and it's interesting that the moment that so many people see as the kind of nadir of 24 in a sense is the point in season six when they fail to stop a nuclear bomb going off and I mean, in some ways, I, I actually, I didn't so much mind that. I mean, it was quite shocking as a, as a twist in the story. Uh, but I don't, you know, I mean, that is a moment of failure. That is basically a sort of acknowledgement that we don't always win these things. Do you know what I mean? And that, that they were trying to, they were doing everything they could to prevent this disaster and it happened anyway. And then obviously they find, you know, there's three more or something and they can stop those ones going off instead. But you, you know, I think that you're right. That is an interesting, elements of it you know what does 9-11 represent well it does represent this kind of national international trauma it represents the kind of jumping off point for this kind of gung-ho militarism racism all sorts of ugly stuff you know that follows it uh but you're right it does also represent a sort of failure to prevent something um 
horrific from taking place. And I think that is not really there in the Enterprise version. I mean, the Enterprise version, it feels very uh, 9-11 inflected in the way it's presented. Partly you've got this rising death toll, which was very much, you know, the, the way things kind of uh, turned out in that situation. The numbers keep going up in this kind of horrifying way. You've got this kind of baffled reaction. Who did this? Why did they do this? Why has this happened? You, you know, the, the kind of um, total inability to grasp uh, what was going on. And you've got this kind of, um, you know, they basically go to ground zero, don't they? And sort of see the, the scale of the damage and the and the devastation and so on. But it's, there isn't any sense of, um, you know, this could have been prevented. Uh, there isn't any sense of this could have been prevented or, you know, we should have um, been able to stop this. Um, I mean, the only people who could have stopped it are the the other, you know, factions in the Temporal Cold War. Uh, and they kind of quickly dismiss that by saying, oh, well, if, you know, if we'd, if we'd intervened at that point, you probably wouldn't have believed us about what was going to happen, which is a, sort of a weird uh, justification for, for not doing anything. But, you know... Um, it's it's sort of just something that's happened and it's and i suppose crucially you know enterprise misses it by the time they get home all the memorial services have happened you know they were kind of out exploring when this took place um they weren't sitting there like many of us were you know with the tv on watching the plane go into that second tower and seeing it unfold in real time uh they get the message once it's happened um and it's kind of you know it's sort of a done deal in terms of the narrative it's not it's not a first attack that anyone can has any chance of stopping it's kind of just it's it's something that has happened and then it's the aftermath and it's the you know the preventing the, the you know the really big one that is what the story is about you you know actually not unlike that season of 24 when the you know they don't stop the first bomb but they manage to stop the other ones that's a good point yeah i never thought about that i yet. guess we do just have to hope that you know like you say, Lee, there's always a Jack Bauer out there when we need one. Um, in the meantime, I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll be uh, popping back again. Whether we see Jack Bauer again out of Russian prison or not, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a given. I think that you'll you'll be welcome back on Primitive Culture uh, whenever the next uh, occasion arises. But in the meantime, let our listeners know what you've been up to lately, and if they want to get in touch with you um, online, what the best way of doing that is. Uh, yeah, apart from watching Lower Decks, I've um still doing my own podcast the 24 project and filibuster on the nerd party network so you can find us there and you can find me on twitter at lee hutchson underscore or at star trek vhs you're blended all right